This disclaimer informs listeners that the views, thoughts and opinions expressed in the text belong solely to the creators and not necessarily to the creator's employer, organisation, committee or other group or individual. Following up with the previous chat, we mentioned clotting in COVID-19 and sending off D-dimer tests. So in this chat, we would like to bring up the importance of recognising venous thromboembolism or what we call VTE in COVID-19. So why would VTE or pulmonary embolism be one of the main differentials in respiratory failure in COVID-19 patients? Amira, how did we actually discover this phenomenon? Yes, hi Lavanya. So... In um, respiratory failure in general, um, actually we do consider PE as one of the main differentials. However, in COVID-19, during the early days of the pandemic, scientists began to look at postmortem tissues and specimens of COVID-19 patients. And um, they found evidence of microthrombi and pulmonary embolism. So there's this prospective case study that was uh, conducted in Germany, which looked at the first 12 consecutive deaths at a medical center there. Um, about a third of the deaths were due to massive pulmonary embolism. In another three cases, they found fresh, deep venous thrombosis, but in the absence of pulmonary embolism. So, you know, other forms of VTE, essentially. And interestingly, only two out of the remaining deaths were due to pneumonia. So what we can see here is that in all of the 12 cases, the cause of death was found within the lungs and the pulmonary vascular system. But that is quite an early discovery, I would say. Yeah, agreed. And recent studies also show the prevalence of VTE in COVID patients are higher than those um, hospitalized for other medical problems. Which brings us to the question as to why someone with the COVID-19 has a higher tendency to develop VTE. And to answer that question, I have come across this new term in medicine, which is thromboinflammation. And this brings us back to the basics, which is the Verkhoff's triad. So let's go through it one by one. The first arm in Verkhoff's triad, which is endothelial injury, and this occurs in any form of uh, inflammation. So in COVID-19, especially in severe disease, you see systemic inflammation, which triggers endothelial injury. To add on to that, the virus actually directly attaches itself to the endothelial cells via receptors and damages the endothelium essentially. Oh, and also bear in mind, those ill folks most of the time require intensive monitoring and resuscitation. So central vein catheters or lines can also cause endothelial injury to their already existing fragile vessels. That's a very molecular level of explanation you have there, you know. <laughs> yeah, anyway, moving on, I'm going to the next arm of the uh, Verkhoff's triad, which is blood stasis. In severe disease, which are those with category uh, 4 and 5, they are to a certain extent less mobile due to their illness and their dependency to oxygen. And this puts them at a risk of having venous stasis. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, similar to being in a state of active cancer, for example, COVID-19 is also a hypercoagulable state owing to the fact that the hyperinflammatory state uh, triggers the coagulation cascade. And since this is a very debilitating complication of COVID-19, right? Um, do we routinely screen hospitalized patients for VTE, Amira? And if we do, well, how do we screen them then? Yeah, so this is indeed a complication that we all fear, but we do not routinely screen everyone who is admitted. Um, 
So, you know, a systemic inflammation is what triggers BTE. Um, and generally, those with no symptoms or with milder forms of the disease will have a limiting disease. I see. So, what are you trying to say here is that um, patients who are uh, in the more severe forms of their disease should be screened for VTE, am I right? Yeah, that's uh, exactly what I meant. So, those uh, are the ones who are, you know... Um, initially admitted in the mild disease spectrum, uh, but however, their mm-hmm. clinical condition changes and now they require oxygen. Or, you know, those who are already on low supplemental oxygen and now they require a step up in the oxygen supplement. Uh, I see. So, uh, increasing oxygen requirement could also be a sign of pulmonary thrombosis, right? That's right, yeah. So, um, now we have identified someone who we suspect to have VTE. Now, Lavanya, can you tell me how would you approach this kind of cases? Mm-hmm. When it comes to screening for VTE, you'll be introduced to the D-dimer protein. So, interpreting D-dimer levels is an interesting way of detecting clots. We essentially look at the breakdown product of a blood clot to decide whether or not one has a clot. A D-dimer is actually a small protein fragment which is present in the blood following degradation of blood clots by fibrinolysis. So, if the D-dimer levels are elevated in COVID-19 patients, then we can use them to identify those with high risk, uh, high disease severity and those who might have pulmonary complications. I believe this will also assist us with you know, stratifying the risk for patients and early introduction of uh, therapeutic measures that might reduce the COVID-19 related morbidity and mortality in the end. Well, we can also see this uh, in meta-analysis, which have uh, shown that patients with severe forms of COVID-19 have higher D-dimer concentrations when compared to those with milder forms. Now, could you take us through a scenario then, Amira, where a patient who is deteriorating and has elevated D-dimer levels, what would you do next then? Well, what I would do uh, for these sort of cases is that I would arrange a CT pulmonary angiography or a CTPA because it still remains the gold standard modality to diagnose pulmonary embolism or a PE. However, in uh, situations where these tests are not feasible mm-hmm. and if uh, you have a high index of suspicion for VTE, which you know you see in most of the cases of uh, hospitalized COVID-19 patients anyway, um, you can start or administer therapeutic doses of anticoagulant. Right. So now we have a patient with uh, confirmed PE on CTPA. What would you do next, Lavanya? Are there any other data points or information that you would need before you decide on um, initiating anticoagulant therapy? Yeah, we frequently overlook that aspect, Amira, but not to worry because we have our friendly (laughs) pharmacies to keep us in check on the contraindications, the drug-drug interactions, and also importantly, the renal-adjusted dosages. Actually, uh, I would want to look at the hemoglobin levels and the platelet counts to look for if there's any bleeding diathesis before I initiate therapy. The conditions that I want to avoid anticoagulant therapy will be uh, conditions like uh, if someone is having active major bleeding, of course, due to obvious reasons. Um, If they have a platelet count of less than 25,000, and that's based on our guidelines, as well as not to forget history of uh, hypersensitivity to porcine products or anoxaparin. All right, I think you can quit teasing us with the <laughs> indications and contraindications. Um, so, uh, why don't you tell us what would you actually initiate for a patient with confirmed PE in COVID-19? Yeah, so anticoagulation with heparin in general seems to be the mainstay of uh, treatment in critically ill COVID-19 patients with VTE. 
And that's because uh, heparin has uh, special properties such as it's anti-thrombotic, uh, it's anti-inflammatory, it also can be an anti-complement and it has direct antiviral effects as well, surprisingly. Okay, that's great. Um, let me take the beta okay. now. Uh, as for the specifics, low molecular weight heparin or fondaparinox are preferred over unfractionated heparin. Mm -hmm. And um, the treatment dose for VTE using enoxaparin is 1 milligram per kilogram body weight twice a day. So that is a subcutaneous preparation given 12 hours mm -hmm. apart. But of course, you know, this is not the long-term solution for patients with VTE. Um, if they come out of the ill phase and they have no gastrointestinal intolerance, then um, obviously an oral preparation is given. However, we would still require at least five days of parental therapy before converting to the oral form, especially in the case of uh, direct oral anticoagulants or DOEX. All right. But you know what? Our discussion on VTE in COVID-19 is just not complete without talking about the prophylaxis for VTE, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I sense that <laughs> I am on the hot seat again now. So <laughs> let's go. Um, so based on our local guidelines, um, all patients in category 4 and 5, which are those in severe disease, should receive standard prophylactic anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin or inoxaparin in the absence of any contraindications like what you mentioned earlier on, Lavanya. Um, about the dosing, I'd like to highlight that there are two different arms under thromboprophylaxis dosage, which are daily dosing and twice daily dosing of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram body weight. So, for instance, we have a 70 kilogram guy who is requiring nasal cannula oxygen. He would be receiving the daily dosing. So it will be around 35 milligrams, which is then rounded up to 40 milligrams a day. As opposed to the same guy who is being ventilated in the intensive care unit, he will be receiving 40 milligrams twice daily injection of low molecular weight heparin. Okay, so now, Lavanya, did you find anything interesting about post-discharge thromboprophylaxis? Meaning, do we, you know, continue prophylaxis for VTE after a patient is discharged? Yeah, I did find something interesting. So, in non-COVID cases, um, I repeat, non-COVID cases uh, with high risk of VTE, Evidence has shown that uh, post-discharge prophylaxis is more beneficial with the FDA-approved use of uh, rivaroxaban, 10 milligrams daily, and this can go up to 39 days. Okay, so in a nutshell, for COVID-19, um, thromboprophylaxis is not recommended in patients who are discharged, is that right? That's correct. Okay, great. So now back to our patient. Um, we started him on a um, therapeutic dose of anticoagulation and now he's recovered and he's fit for discharge. Lavanya, what does that transition look like? Well, while they are hospitalised, a parenteral preparation is given as mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. But soon or later, Mira, we will start preparing for their discharge. And this means converting the parenteral therapy to an oral preparation. So such as warfarin or DOEX, for instance. For example, dabigatran, apixaban, and even rivaroxaban. Duration of treatment is going to be between three to six months. And no, we do not need a surveillance CTPA at the end of treatment because this is a provoked VTE episode. As for the outpatient monitoring part, they can be monitored regularly as uh, per how we would review a non-COVID patient with VTE in the clinics. And this actually sums up the um, management of VTE in post-discharge COVID-19 patients then. <laughs> well, this chat today was super fun as we uncovered the mysteries of thromboinflammation in COVID-19. I am really looking forward to the next ones. 
And as we have talked about the implications of this disease from a medical perspective, how about its effects on healthcare workers? I think we should address the elephant in the room, right? Yeah, definitely. I believe it is our responsibility to recognize the effects of the pandemic on healthcare workers and also discuss ways that we can all come together to overcome these issues. Right, Lavanya, we have come to the end of our chat. And um, before we go, we would uh, again like to leave you with a beautiful quote. <laughs> Knowledge has a beginning with no end. And that's all for today. Signing off from me, Amira. And me, Lavanya. Bye-bye. Bye.